To be completely honest, I tend to get sucked into the narratives in modern history. We're talking the last few hundred years, more than ancient history or even that of the Middle Ages. Maybe it's because I'm American and because our country's history doesn't stretch that far into the past in comparison to many other countries around the world. Maybe it's because it was a long time ago, but not really. And it's where I can feel a connection, either through my own lineage or that of the people I'm close to. Connection with the ancestors. But ancient history in the history of the Middle Ages can be instructive to modern societies such as our own. As far as empires go, the one that most recognize is that of ancient Rome. In the fastest timeline of the Roman Empire you'll ever hear. After having existed as a republic for nearly 500 years, in 27 BCE, ancient Rome transitioned to an empire with the declaration made by the newly installed Roman leader Octavius that he was now the Emperor of Rome. Octavius would now be known as Augustus Caesar, both names being essentially titles. He took the name Caesar to link himself to the earlier Roman dictator Julius Caesar, who listed him as his adopted son and heir in his will. And Augustus was an additional honorific bestowed upon him by the Senate. Over the next 500 years, Rome would be hard at work gobbling up territory outside of its home base on the Italian peninsula. It was legendary, known as the Empire of Empires, the sun never sets on the Roman Empire, and it was viewed much like the Titanic when it was built, unsinkable. But over time, this expansion by conquest wore on Rome, and the empire split in two. The Eastern Roman Empire would then be known as the Byzantine Empire it would endure until the 1400s. The Western Roman Empire would continue on. But over the decades, even a slimmed-down Roman Empire became too much to govern. Corrupt governance, economic and social instability, and threats from both without and within whittled away the empire until Rome fell in 476 CE after being invaded by the Visigoths. The United States of America is an empire. In terms of land acquisition, this country expanded through treaties and conquest, especially in its first century and a half. Of course, not all countries involved in war over land are empires. But unlike countries that have fought to maintain what they view to be the integrity of their own borders, the United States started out as a colony based on the expansion of another established empire broke away from that empire, then proceeded to take over lands, killing off the majority of the native peoples who lived there and importing Africans as slave labor from coast to coast and eventually beyond, imposing their way of life, their economic system, their value system, their religion. The United States has evolved into an empire of culture. But nothing lasts forever. At a certain point, it falls apart. Nationalism, white nationalism, Christian nationalism, as well as late-stage capitalism and austerity policies. And over the past few decades, the three branches of national government in our democratic republic have given more and more power to the executive branch, the presidency. That and 
a number of other factors have led to the regime of Donald Trump. And a regime it is. The United States as a true democratic republic has been quite flawed throughout the course of our nation's history. But as of right now, democracy in the United States is over. And now we're living in an authoritarian state. And it's the type of authoritarianism that is tearing down everything good in our country for the selfish desires of Donald Trump. And it may get worse before it gets better. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. The past month and a half since I last released a regular episode has been a lot. The break was planned in advance, so it would be ready to consistently release episodes discussing aspects of the 2020 presidential election. That's still the idea. But life also happens. I spent much of the time sick, and also, two days after Christmas, my birth mother passed away. I reflect on that more in depth in the most recent Patreon bonus episode, which, by the way, I'm going to discuss the future of the Patreon and some other important details at the end of the episode, so be sure to stick around for that. But of course, time stops for no one. And while I was away, so much has happened politically. Donald Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives back in December on two counts, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And then the Senate, openly cooperating with the White House, voted against calling witnesses to Trump's extortion and egregious conduct. And what was a surprise to absolutely no one, the Senate acquitted Trump at the beginning of February. The vote went along party lines, Democrats voting to convict, and the Republican majority voting to acquit, except for a lone Republican, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, voting for removal on one of the impeachment articles, Abuse of Power, citing his Mormon faith as his reason for doing so. U.S. Senator Susan Collins of Maine said that the impeachment process should teach Trump a lesson, which is why she voted for acquittal. So she claimed. Did Trump learn his lesson? Well, it depends on what lesson was to be learned. If the lesson was that Trump could be reined in, (laughs) if it taught him that no matter what he does, he won't be held to account and that there will be no consequences. See, right here, I would normally play a Trump clip, but it's absolutely gross. Gloating the day after the acquittal. Gloating during the national prayer breakfast. Ranting about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and impeachment architect Adam Schiff. Gross. Unlike President Bill Clinton, at least trying to come off as contrite after his impeachment and acquittal in 1998, Trump has no humility at all. Negative humility. He sees his acquittal in the sham Senate trial as vindication, and he has called for revenge in both speeches. Revenge on the Democrats and those he feels have wronged him. Trump has also doubled down on his war against the oppressed and vulnerable in society. For example, 
He has been pushing for legislation revamping the review process for people with disabilities to receive government support. The legislation is designed to enact more reviews and increased paperwork, aiming at denying disability coverage to more Americans and cutting disability benefits by $2.6 billion. As it is, 53% of disability claims in the U.S. are denied, making America one of the toughest countries in the world for people with disabilities to obtain government benefits. On top of that, the administrative costs are believed to cancel out the savings in benefits allocations. This isn't going to save any money. It's just evil. But like Trump's policies regarding refugees from Central America and Syria, as well as immigrants from predominantly Muslim countries, when it comes to his targeting of people with disabilities, the cruelty is the point. Senate Republicans have unleashed pure evil on our country, allowing a tyrant to stay on as commander-in-chief who committed offenses that make Richard Nixon's offenses pale in comparison. Senate Sherrod Brown, a Democrat representing my state of Ohio, wrote an article in the New York Times disclosing that some of his Republican colleagues privately admitted to acquitting Trump out of fear. They had the option to stop this runaway train and instead stepped right out of the way. Borrowing a quote from Christian author C.S. Lewis, these are men and women without chests. Democratic members of Congress in both chambers are not without blame, with Democratic members of the House voting to give Trump money to carry out his egregious policies, and Democratic senators voting with Republicans to confirm Trump appointees. All of this while moving forward with impeachment. It's as if too many elected Democrats, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi included, at least up until now, have not fully understood the gravity of the situation. When drafting the U.S. Constitution, the founders, for all their major issues and faults, designed a system that, on paper, would keep each branch of government accountable. The Electoral College was designed with two purposes. One, to give more of a say to smaller states, along with the Senate, and two, to protect the country from mob rule. The founders were, at their core, aristocrats, elitists, who did not trust the masses to choose all or even most of their leaders. Initially, the only federal office with direct elections was the House of Representatives. Senators were originally appointed by state legislatures until 1913 with the ratification of the 17th Amendment, which made the Senate a body made up through direct statewide elections. In addition, the national government was divided into three branches, each with separate powers and designed to hold each other accountable. But I wonder if they ever took into account the idea that every single stopgap could fail given the right conditions, because that's where we are right now. In 2016, our mob rule came mostly from the South and Middle America. Groups in these parts of the country are the people who Donald Trump aimed his message towards. And whatever reasons these voters gave for supporting Trump, economic anxiety, tax cuts, abortion, Hillary Clinton's emails, and the lesser of two evils. The fact is that Trump ran as someone who overtly and unabashedly denigrated racial and religious minorities 
and bragged about sexual assault, and none of these issues were deal breakers to the voters who supported him. The South and Midwest are also parts of the country with outsized voting power compared to the coasts. This has meant that in honoring its first purpose of giving power to smaller states, the Electoral College has fallen short of the second purpose. Instead of the Electoral College stopping mob rule, it has enabled it. With Donald Trump, a man who has never held government office nor worked in any position related to government, becoming president of the United States, it was even more imperative that the other branches of government keep him accountable and use the checks on the power of the executive built in by the U.S. Constitution. But over the past three years, that hasn't happened either. During the presidency of Barack Obama, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had stalled the confirmation of several open federal judgeships, most notably the nomination of Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court following the death of conservative U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. This left an inordinate amount of judicial positions open so that once Trump became president, the Republican Party could essentially run the tables. So as of right now, a quarter of sitting federal judges are Trump appointees, many of whom have little to no actual judicial experience and have been selected from lists provided by conservative groups such as the Federalist Society, the least diverse group of judges in quite some time, many of whom won't even go on record with their view of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the landmark racial desegregation case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954. And at the nation's highest court, two Trump justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, have been confirmed over the past three years, pushing the court further to the right and allowing Trump to enact many of his inhumane immigration policies. The only time Donald Trump has gotten even close to trouble is with his impeachment in December 2019. It can be argued that his inhumane policies towards refugees from Central America seeking asylum or denying entry to refugees from Syria are policy decisions and generally aren't thought to be under the scope of impeachment. Unfortunately, Trump is by far not the first president to make inhumane policy decisions. Now, let me be 100% clear here. This is by no means a justification of these policies. We just don't have constitutional structures in place for regulating decision-making purely on humanitarian grounds. After all, this same constitution originally included a way for slaves to be counted for the sake of giving white men in slave states outsized representation in Congress. In policies that many of us view as unconstitutional, the determination as to whether or not they are judged as such are made by the courts. And we just talked about what happened to those. But holding on to his businesses after becoming president instead of divesting of them as previous presidents have done and using those personal business interests to drive policy, whether it's the Secret Service being forced to stay at his hotels and resorts when he travels, barring immigrants from Muslim countries, but only the ones he doesn't have hotels or other business concerns in, or refusing to help Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States, after Hurricane Maria, an outcome of a failed hotel in the Commonwealth. Those fall under quid pro quo, otherwise known as bribery, and extortion. High crimes and misdemeanors, 
one of the justifications for impeachment and removal. Yet, none of these incidents got him in trouble. But the Ukraine affair, surely because it was in relation to the son of a longtime prominent politician and former vice president, was the one thing that led Donald Trump anywhere close to accountability. So when you hear critics say that the House was grasping at straws to find something to impeach Trump on, the facts demonstrate that this narrative is a bold-faced lie. But even this wasn't enough for Senate Republicans, save Mitt Romney, to do the jobs they swore an oath to do. Their complicity has meant that the last structural roadblock instituted by the founders to keep this Democratic Republic stable has been bypassed. Or, more accurately, we've blown right by it. While we can look at America's founders as visionary men, they were also very, very human. How could they possibly see the future and know that the fail-safes they erected could be knocked down by the mob rule they feared, and government officials that refused to abide by the roles they swore to, that under the right conditions, it would all collapse like dominoes? In the Democratic Republic they established would end in the matter of just a few short years. There's a lot in our world to be concerned about. Economic downturns, nationalism, white supremacy, religious extremism, oppression of various groups, social unrest, wars, genocide, pestilence, authoritarianism and totalitarianism, failing states. And in these uncertain times, some people are determined to be prepared. As what almost feels like a companion piece to this episode, Nick and John discuss doomsday preppers. Who are these people? Why are they preparing for the end? And what do they do to prepare? As always, it's a great episode and very pertinent to the times we're living in right now. So check it out. Stranger Still is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. And for all the wonderful podcasts of Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. In the 1920s, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazi Party, was a small but growing fringe party in post-World War I Germany, the Nazi Party was originally founded in 1919, driven by a combination of nationalist and socialist ideologies. Adolf Hitler originally joined the Nazi Party in the early 1920s as a spy sent by the German army under the post-war Weimar Republic, over concerns that the party was leading a left-wing insurgency. But Hitler found himself agreeing with the nationalist element of the party and became a true believer at least on that front. Over the next couple of years, socialist ideology within the party would take a backseat to its nationalist, anti-Semitic proclivities, which coincided to Hitler's quick rise to prominence within the party, elevating himself from spy to party chair in less than two years, on the back of his ability to speak and excite a crowd. But this rise would come with some hiccups. In 1921, Hitler was arrested for his role in attempting to overthrow the government and went to prison for a little over a month. Then, in 1923, Hitler was charged with high treason for another attempted coup in Munich 
during what would be known as the Birhal Push. For this, he was sentenced to prison for five years and served nine months, during which time he wrote his infamous book, Mein Kampf. These experiences led him to shift to the long game method of gaining political power for himself and his party. Instead of forcing a change through coup, the Nazis would do so by focusing on making Nazism a populist movement. Fast forward to 1932. Adolf Hitler runs for president of Germany, but is defeated by Paul von Hindenburg, the incumbent president. Von Hindenburg views Hitler and the increasingly popular Nazi party as a threat, but figures that if he can bring him into his existing government as Germany's chancellor, this would neutralize the threat. At this time, Chancellor was a head of government position appointed by the president. So in early 1933, von Hindenburg appoints Hitler chancellor and figures everything would be fine. But what would happen next would not be so fine. Hitler successfully pushed for von Hindenburg to hold new elections for the Reichstag, the German legislature, on March 5, 1933, several weeks after his becoming chancellor. A week before the elections were scheduled, fire was set to the Reichstag building in an incident known as the Reichstag Fire. It's unknown whether the Nazis caused the fire, but they were able to capitalize on this, blaming the fire on Germany's Communist Party. In the election, the Nazis were able to gain enough seats in the Reichstag to form a coalition with a similar party. The new Reichstag passed the Enabling Act allowing all future legislation to be made directly by the Chancellor's cabinet, bypassing the Reichstag entirely, and essentially establishing Hitler as dictator. With this power, the Weimar Constitution was suspended, and all political parties were outlawed with the exception of, of course, the Nazis. The Weimar Republic was now over, and Nazi Germany was born. But while Hitler had full control over the legislature, he did not have control over the military, at least not yet. The military was still under the control of von Hindenburg, and they fiercely held on to their independence in the early years of the Nazi regime. The Nazis themselves did have their own paramilitary force, the SA, run by longtime loyal Nazi Ernst Röhm. The SA had originally been made up of disaffected World War I veterans, who decided to join the Nazis and over time became a semi-autonomous militia under the auspices of the Nazis. The SA, also known as brown shirts or stormtroopers, were responsible for intimidating and executing deadly street attacks on rival political parties, Hitler's political enemies, as well as Jews and other groups the Nazis deemed undesirable. They were also at odds with the German army, or Reichswehr, this posed a couple problems for Hitler. Some SA stormtroopers were becoming disillusioned with the Nazis. The Nazis had started out as a party that sought to recruit working-class Germans, and many were waiting on the Nazis to improve their economic situation through socialism. But Hitler had no real interest in actual socialism. He embraced nationalism, but was by no means a socialist. This led some of them to be more loyal to Rome than to Hitler, or at least that's what Hitler feared. On the other hand, the Reichswehr was not under his control and was under the control of von Hindenburg, who was not a Nazi. 
Hitler wanted control over both militaries, as he was distrustful of armed groups that weren't under his control. Yeah, that sounds about right. So he sought to fix two problems at once. He would seek to gain the loyalty of the Reichswehr by reining in the brown shirts. By early 1934, the SA was larger than the Reichswehr and posed more of a threat. There was fears that the Reichswehr would be absorbed into the SA. So Hitler pressured Röhm to sign an agreement stating the SA would serve as an auxiliary force to the Reichswehr. In other words, the Reichswehr would be higher ranked than the SA. But even with this agreement, Röhm still envisioned the brown shirts at the core of Nazi Germany's military, not the Reichswehr, which endeared the rank and file within the SA to Röhm. Now, Röhm was part of the old guard and loathed Hitler's strategy of the Nazis becoming part of the system. He would rather have seen the Nazis take over in an out-and-out coup. Former Chancellor Kurt von Schleichter, Hitler's predecessor and political rival from the old Weimar Republic, viewed this rift between Hitler and Röhm as a way to weaken Hitler's power. So von Schleicher openly criticized Hitler's cabinet, his group of trusted advisors, and von Schleicher's followers publicly passed around lists of new suggested cabinet members, which included Ernst Röhm as Minister of Defense. Even though Schleicher wasn't politically powerful at this point, and as far as I've seen in the research, he and Röhm weren't working together, the suggestion that the two would conspire to wrestle power away from Hitler threatened the Führer. Pressure from Hitler's actual cabinet, conservative leaders such as Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen, as well as criticism from Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, began pushing Hitler in the direction of punishing the SA in Ernst Röhm, as they argued that the SA could lead a revolution and were already embarrassing Germany with their street violence among other things. Those other things including that they were known to party a lot, and in the top ranks, including Roman himself, many of them were gay. But what pushed Hitler over the edge was that in mid-1934, President von Hindenburg, who at this point was dying, threatened martial law and giving control of government to the Reichswehr if Hitler didn't rein in the brown shirts. So a group of Hitler's top leaders were directed to come up with a plan for a purge for the purposes of solidifying Hitler's power, neutralizing his rivals, and serving as a warning to any others who might consider challenging him for power. The group came up with a pretense for Rome's removal from the SA, forging papers that stated Rome was planning to use the SA to overthrow the government, and drafted a list of perceived enemies, both inside and outside the SA, to be targeted. June 29, 1934, would be the day that Adolf Hitler would seek to settle old scores and consolidate power. Over the next 24 hours, starting at 4.30 in the morning, he and the SS, the elite military unit closest to Hitler, would seek out Ernst Röhm and about two other SA senior leaders and ultimately have them murdered. He also exacted deadly revenge on a number of rivals, killing Kurt von Schleicher, Gregor Strasser, a former Nazi leader who butted heads with Hitler and resigned two years earlier, and even a man who had been Bavarian state commissioner in the 1920s who had Hitler arrested for the Beer Hall push in 1923. 
that guy, Gustav Ritter von Kahr, had been mutilated. The purge had been completed, and Adolf Hitler's stranglehold on power in Nazi Germany was now complete. Hitler sold what he would later call the Night of the Long Knives to the German people as a necessary response to treason. But really, the Night of the Long Knives was carried out for the sake of self-interest and for payback. Following the Senate's decision to acquit Donald Trump at the beginning of this month, Dear Leader has vowed payback. And so far, he has delivered on his revenge vow, having Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a decorated combat veteran and a top expert on Ukraine on the National Security Council, removed from his position, as well as his twin brother, Lieutenant Colonel Evgeny Vindman, who was also on the NSC, as well as recalling Gordon Sondland, ambassador to the European Union. Both Alexander Vindman and Gordon Sondland were called as witnesses and chose to testify in the House impeachment hearings. And Trump has followed up Vindman's ouster with, of course, tearing down the lieutenant colonel's reputation, stating, quote, Actually, I don't know him, never spoke to him, or met him, I don't believe, but he was very insubordinate, reported contents of my perfect calls incorrectly, and was given a horrendous report by his superior, the man he reported to, who publicly stated that Vindman had problems with judgment, adhering to the chain of command, and leaking information. In other words, out. End quote. According to an interview on Fox News with White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway, there could be more firings on the horizon. As of this recording, 8 out of 12 officials who testified publicly during the House impeachment hearings are no longer in their positions, whether through resignation, reassignment, or firing. And, as for Mitt Romney, the lone Republican senator voting for Trump's removal from office, his vote led to the ire of dear leader, who counted on the optics of a 100% party-line vote in the Senate. But Romney threw a small but significant wrench into that narrative. Trump was irate over this, and Donald Trump Jr. called for Romney to be kicked out of the Republican Party. Romney has been shut out of party events by his fellow senators, and Matt Schlapp, the chair of the Conservative Political Action Committee, has said that Romney is not invited to the annual CPAC conference because he is a, quote, non-conservative, end quote, and said, quote, this year, I would actually be afraid for his physical safety. People are so mad at him, end quote. Schlapp later walked back part of that statement, downplaying the threat of violence against Romney, but also remarking, quote, I wish Romney no harm. I just want him to find a new hobby away from destroying GOP momentum, end quote. Party over country, indeed. Unlike Adolf Hitler, Donald Trump has not outright slaughtered his domestic enemies yet, but is a clear ramping up of his predictable pattern of smearing and enacting political retribution against Republicans who come out against his policies most notably his eternal grudge against the late Senator John McCain for voting against Trump care in 2017, a grudge that has lasted long after McCain's death in August of 2018. And now the wheels are off, and we're heading further down the road to authoritarianism. Eh, as a matter of fact, we're probably already there. And 
Whether we're talking about the Nazis or later authoritarian regimes, such as that of Augusto Pinochet of Chile, or today's examples such as Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia, or parallel regimes to the U.S. like Bolsonaro in Brazil, this road does not bode well for the American people or the ability to live amongst each other or for our environment or for a way of life. And with the backdrop of the increased threat of white nationalism, not only in the U.S., but in Europe with strains of European nationalism, we're looking at really tough times ahead. But nothing is new under the sun. The way I see it, there's always a resistance. When we think of the term resistance in historical terms, we think of World War II and the various resistance movements that fought against the Nazis as their countries were being invaded and conquered. Even within Germany, while there wasn't a fully coordinated united resistance movement, individual Germans resisted Hitler, some even to the point of violence. But not all resistance was that extreme. There's a picture that can be found on the internet. I'll link to it in the show notes, where Adolf Hitler is in Hamburg, Germany, christening an SS naval ship in 1936. Everyone in the crowd has thrown their hands up in a Nazi salute. Men in uniform, men in civilian clothing, suits, work uniforms, even the maybe one or two women in the crowd. All of them are doing the Sieg Heil. If I venture to guess, a couple hundred people. Except for one. There was one guy in the crowd with his arms folded and a smirk on his face. That guy was identified as August Landmesser. August was a German man who had joined the Nazi party during the early 1930s, believing it would get him better work prospects. He moved up in the party over the years, but that upward mobility came to a screeching halt in 1935, when it was discovered that August was engaged to Irma Eckler, who was Jewish. Due to the Nuremberg Laws, regulations that segregated Aryans from Jews, Roma, and Black people, and discriminated against targeted non-Aryans. The couple were unable to legally get married, but their relationship led him to be expelled from the Nazi party. In 1937, August and Irma, now with a daughter, were attempting to escape to Denmark, but were arrested. August was acquitted of the charge of dishonoring the race in May of 1938, but was barred from continuing his relationship with Irma. The couple defied that and were taken into custody by the Nazis less than two months later. Irma, who was pregnant with the couple's second child, was placed in prison, where she later gave birth to another daughter. After bouncing around in several concentration camps, Irma was shipped to an extermination camp in 1942, where she was killed by the Nazis. August was convicted and sentenced to two and a half years in a concentration camp. He was released in early 1941 and worked for a transport company, never seeing his wife or children again. Then in 1944, August was drafted into a penal battalion, a military unit for convicts considered expendable, and was killed in action later that year. The story is extremely tragic. The only bright part of the story being that both of their daughters survived a war, and although growing up apart not knowing each other, were able to reunite decades later. While we tend to think of resistance within the historical framework of Nazi Germany, the act of resistance against oppressive governments and social orders predates even that. 
Rome fell in part because of the uprising of groups in the lands they occupied. It's been one of the reasons why wars have been fought and coups have been executed. Oppressive governments of pretty much any type fear resistance. Even in the United States, which has always functioned as a flawed democracy, there have been Americans who fought back. Various movements throughout history, abolitionism, women's suffrage, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, disability rights. And I know that it's not exhaustive. There have been people both from the affected groups and allies who were willing to risk and even give up their lives for a better tomorrow. I bring this up to say that true resistance comes at a cost. And as authoritarian regimes, especially ones that seek to oppress certain people groups, and most do, gain a stranglehold on a nation, there comes a time when being neutral is no longer an option. We're fast approaching that time. I don't say this all to scare you. I'm saying this because I don't want to lie about where we are, and it's important to know what is happening at this point in our history so we can know how to fight back. Even with the cost, resistance is worth it. Nazi Germany eventually lost the war. Of course, there were many reasons why they lost, but I'm sure that the resistance of conquered countries throughout Europe didn't help the Nazi cause. Is it discouraging to see evil triumph? Sure. Is it disheartening to experience the disintegration of relationships with family or friends over their unquestioning support of dear leader against all truth? Yes. But our country and each other are worth the fight. Let's not wait until November, as November may be too late. Now is the time. Next time, I plan to discuss the early goings of the Democratic primaries, including the mess in Iowa and the New Hampshire primary. How real are the rifts among Democrats, and will the Democrats be ready for the general election? Also, I've talked about resistance, but I want to talk about that more in practical terms. What does that look like from now until November? So stay tuned for that in the next couple of weeks. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, there's one other thing I want to talk to you about. Since June of 2018, Potstar Podcast has been part of Flying Machine, a network of independent podcasts, along with other creative properties. This has been a wonderful chapter for Potstar Podcast, as well as in my life personally. Unfortunately, all great things must come to an end. After February 28th, 2020, Potstar Podcast will no longer be under the Flying Machine banner. Flying Machine will be shutting down at the end of the month. At this time, many of us are growing and moving in so many different directions professionally and personally, and, well, it's time. What does this mean for Potstar Podcast, as well as the other great podcasts affiliated with Flying Machine? All of the Flying Machine podcasts including Potstar Podcast, will continue on independently. So no, I'm not going anywhere, and neither are the other podcasters that are currently part of the network. We're all independent shows with our own feeds and websites, so if you're subscribed to this podcast or other podcasts under the Flying Machine banner, you won't need to rediscover it or find a new feed for it. The podcasts and other creative content that I've shouted out 
from flying machine are truly excellent. And I mean that. A huge reason, probably the top reason, why I joined Flying Machine is because of the entertaining, thoughtful, and innovative content creators I would be able to associate with and learn from. It has been an honor to create content alongside them. The Flying Machine Patreon is being discontinued as well. Each of our podcasts will retain the rights to the bonus content for our own shows. This means that even though the Patreon bonus feed is going away, the content itself isn't gone forever. Over the next few weeks, I will be exploring the best way to make the catalog of Potstir Podcast bonus episodes available for you to hear. I put as much into those as I put into the regular episodes, and ultimately, it is my desire for them to be heard. I'll have more to say in the next episode about this transition, but I want to be transparent, especially since this has already been announced publicly. Thank you very much for listening to Potstir Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirpodcast.com slash download, and the links will be right there. If you subscribe for free, you can get new episodes once they come out, so you don't miss out. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And I am always tweeting, so follow me on Twitter at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.